So let's uh, let's pray for IDAT and let's pray for Haiti. Uh, Susie had contacted. Uh, did she contact you, Robbie? Uh, that they're getting ready to do a, a cataract uh, surgery outreach. You know, the, just yeah. what we're talking about, sight to the blind. Uh, there are fifteen hundred people who want that surgery. There's enough spaces for four hundred. So we need to pray. Uh, let's just pray for that. Uh, the communities surrounding there, and let's pray for Haiti. So, Father, we bring these things before you, Lord. We, uh, we know that we struggle in this country when natural disasters come, like what happened down south, and we do pray for the people there and the churches there that are working to recover and rebuild. We certainly know what that's like, and we pray for your grace and strength to them. But, Father, we also pray for the, the people that live in this kind of situation on a daily basis, as a regular part of their existence. And we pray that your grace and your mercy stretches out to them to help, to encourage, to sustain. We pray, Father, for that ministry that's going on there through IDAT, that you provide everything that's needed, including this truck that we're looking for. And, Lord, we just trust you. To, to meet with the people that are there. And, and Father, we pray that there are ways in which the ministry can even expand when the need is, is twice as much, three times as much as the availability. We, just, we ask you, Lord, to, to, send, to send workers into the harvest, to, to provide what's necessary to meet the needs so that your kingdom, as Kim was saying, will shine out in the midst of that, in the midst of the brokenness there. We pray for the people in Haiti and Bastia and his church And we trust you, Lord, to surround them with your grace and protect them, Lord Jesus. We pray for stability to come to that nation. We just ask you to intervene and to help in ways that only you can do. Bring stability to the government. Bring benevolence towards the people there. We ask you to do these things, Lord. We put it in your hands because it's way bigger than any of us. We put it in your hands and nothing is too big for you. And nothing is out of your reach. So we pray for your help, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, we're going to begin another study today. Oh, well, it's already up there, I guess. Okay. Uh, I, I, I heard a tragic story uh, when I was doing some preparation on this that really hit me. It happened about 15 years or so ago. An elderly World War II vet in Michigan was found frozen to death in his own home in the middle of winter. Um, His utility bills hadn't been paid in quite some time. The power company had sent notices. They were unheated, and they went and put a limiter on and then ultimately shut his power off, and he slowly froze to death. Obviously, there was outrage uh, in terms of, you know, the power company and, and how this would have happened. Inquiries were made. People were called to account for their actions in this, but there was an underlying heartbreak to this story, and that is that the man had envelopes of money all around his house. In fact, he even had a bank account that had plenty of money in it that could have paid his bill. And so it's speculated, nobody knows for sure, but it's speculated that he got disoriented. He no longer realized he had money, and therefore was letting the bills lapse, and he was trying to burn things around his house to create some source of heat uh, and as I said, it's, it's really tragic. But I thought about how similarly many Christians in this world languish in a poor view of themselves, in hopelessness, in despair, spiritually freezing 
because they're disoriented. We no longer remember how much we have in our relationship with Christ, how much meaning, how much value, how much purpose there is to each and every one of our lives as we've entrusted them to Jesus. This morning we're going to begin this new study series and we're going to be reading through and examining the New Testament book of Ephesians. It's a book that is intent on revealing to us as Christ's followers just how meaningful, how valuable, how important our lives are, how our true worth is found in what it is that God's provided to us through Christ. As you probably know by now, we like to work our way through Scripture book by book, a book at a time. We go through it, and our, our goal is to keep all the text together in its context, and that way we can better understand how we take this ancient literature and translate it to our time and, and, and space and our culture. So that's what we do. Uh, just to get a quick overview of this book, we want to step back and we want to look at it and look at its structure and understand its main emphasis. Pretty much all of the books of the New Testament are, are actually letters. So when we're reading Ephesians, we're reading somebody else's mail. The, the majority of these letters were written by someone named Rabbi Shaul, uh, also known as Paulos or Paul, which was his Greco-Roman name. Now, Rabbi Shaul, or we've called him uh, Saul, was determined to be all things to all people. So when he's hanging out with his fellow Hebrew friends, he's Shaul. When he's writing to the Gentiles in the Greco-Roman culture, he's Paulos. So in this case, he's writing, and we're going to find he's identified as Paulos, as Paul. The letters he wrote were usually to churches that he had planted or planned to visit, and his intent was to instruct and encourage his fellow believers in, in how it is that we go about this life of following Jesus, this mysterious, strange, and wonderful practice of believing on the God that we were just talking, to praying and, and singing about, this God who's willing to suffer on our, on our behalf. So Ephesians is one such letter. Now, the city of Ephesus was in ancient Asia Minor. That's an area that's now modern-day Turkey. Uh, and, and it was a coastal city. In Paul's day, it was actually the capital of the Roman province of Asia. So it was a big deal. It was a major, major port there. In Acts chapter 19, you can read about the Apostle Paul, how he went to Ephesus, spent two years there and spreading the good news, a lot like what we were hearing about this morning with, with the Kuja's ministry and, and the work that's going on with IDAT and how the gospel is impacting and spreading through that area. That was happening with Paul and his traveling companions in Ephesus. It actually became a center for the expansion of the Christian message in the ancient world, in the early church. The letter to the Ephesians was uh, written a long time after Paul had been there. It's written shortly before Paul's death as a martyr, and it's while he's imprisoned at Rome. This is what we're, we piece together as we're looking at the literature there. Paul wrote a lot of letters, and uh, his letters make up the majority of the New Testament. When, when you're reading through those, the majority of those things are letters that were written by, by him. And in most of those letters... Paul is addressing an issue or a controversy that has happened within uh, the church that he wants to address. Ephesians is actually different from that. There doesn't appear to be a major rift or a, an introduction of bad teaching or any such thing going on. We're not told explicitly why he wrote the letter, which really makes it stand out among all of Paul's letters. 
It appears his main intent was just to drive home the foundational truths that are the basis for our hope as followers of Christ. That's, that's partly why Ephesians has been such a profoundly influential letter throughout the entire history of the church. It touches on issues that are important to every generation and every culture, like identity and purpose and meaning and value in life. That's, you know, those are the core issues at the heart of every philosophy and religion on the planet. And in this letter, Paul summarizes the most important revelatory event in history, Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit to reveal newness of life, to reveal a new world that's coming right here and now, revealed right here and now. That, in essence, is the main theme of the letter of, the, of Ephesians, how we live as a new humanity in this present world. All right, so the content of this letter is divided up neatly into two parts. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul exhorts us to comprehend the revelation of the good news. And that's a word he's going to use a lot in this letter. The word is actually, uh, the word is apocalyptos, uh, 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 and it's, it means apocalypse, which we, we, we hear apocalypse and we think... In the world, Mad Max, all that kind of stuff. But it's in the in the biblical language, in the Greek language that it was used, it doesn't mean that at all. It has absolutely nothing to do with the end of the world. It means unveiling. If I were to, you know, if I were to have a a blanket over this microphone, I pull it away, and there's a microphone. I, I, it just <laughs> popped into my head. I have no idea why that would be exciting, but. The unveiling of it, the pulling away of the blanket, that's the idea of, of apocalypse. That's what it means. It's a revelation. And that's what Paul's going to be getting at, this amazing revelation of the good news of what God has done through Jesus and how he's going to make this world right through him. Uh, you know, and, and you know, the whole idea of what the good news is, is God uniting, or we could say reuniting heaven and earth together in Christ. And we are participants of that revelation. Then the second part is in chapters four through six, then Paul gets very practical about it, encourages us to respond to the revelation of the good news by living out the reality of a reunited heaven and earth, living like a new humanity. So we could say that that part one is about what we believe and part two is the practical outflow of that belief. Does that make sense? Do you see what we're, we're saying in that? Not sure what happened there. That slide didn't look like that when I made it. Either way, <laughs> this morning, we're just going to be introducing this letter. We're going to read the prologue, uh, the opening greeting. Uh, and if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, you'd like to, to follow along, you'll want to go to Ephesians chapter 1. So if you're using an old school analog Bible, uh, You'll, you'll, you'll go to the back half of your Bible. If you can find the Gospels, keep flipping forward. You'll come to Acts and then Romans and then First and Second Corinthians and Galatians. And then there you are at Ephesians. If you're using a Bible app, you're there already and you're tempted to start going to Instagram or something. I, I listen, here's the thing. I know that we put the passages up on the screen. And I know that, you know, it's easy just to sit back and, and read it. And I get that. And that's fine. We do that for the convenience of it. I want you to be able to see it you know, no matter what, but I, I still think that it's a good practice, a good habit to get into, to bring a Bible with you, or at least a Bible app, because for one thing, when we're reading this together, 
we were just talking about this uh, the other night in, in a Wednesday night group, that when we're reading it together, the Holy Spirit may inspire you with something as you're reading the text and you want a chance to maybe jot that down. Uh, you can do that if you've got the, the text with you. Otherwise, we forget really easily. Even if you're using a Bible app, you can, you can underline, you can put in notes. Uh, I use the U version of the Bible reader. Um, uh, you know, it's a little clunky on the highlighting side of it, but it's got a great note-taking tool in there. So either way, it's just my plug for bringing your own tools to these studies. But if you're there in Ephesians 1, we're going to begin by reading verse 1. He says, this letter is from Paul chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. So letters in the ancient world, they always followed uh, a set form where the writer would be identified and then his intended reader would uh, be identified and that would be usually followed by a greeting. Paul has adopted this form, but in each case he adds to it where he'd not only identify his readers, but he'd also add descriptions about their relationship to Christ. And he would also add descriptions about his relationship to Christ. So he does the same thing here. First, Paul identifies himself as an apostolos, an apostle who was chosen for this position by God. There's some controversy about Paul actually being the author. And I really don't want to bog down on the details of that argument for or against just know that the majority of conservative scholars believe in the Pauline authorship of this book, believe that Paul wrote it. The biggest argument against his being the author is that the writing style is very different from his other letters. But this is an older, imprisoned with a death sentence, Paul, and it makes sense to me that his writing would have a lot less flourishes in it than his younger writing might have been and in his earlier work. Uh, I personally just don't feel like it really makes a ton of difference if Paul wrote it or not. Uh, the, the content is still amazing. Uh, what does it mean that he was an apostle? We use that term. We hear that term. I'll reference the apostle Paul. An apostle from the early church's perspective was, was one who had either seen the risen Christ or who, who functioned as an agent or representative of Jesus to plant churches and help oversee their formulation. That's how the early church understood this, this role as an apostle. And of course, Paul fits those qualifications. He also makes it clear that he's functioning in that role because God willed it. Not, you know, not because it sounded like a cool job. He could get some, some, some cool kicks from it or, 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 you know, the pay was awesome or something like that. Uh, he was doing this because it was what he was called to do. And likely he couldn't help himself. You know, it's just one of those things. It's like Jeremiah talked about. I tried to shut up, but there was just a fire in my bones and he couldn't stop. It's like I would say with me with teaching, ask my family. They ask a simple question and it's all over. I mean, it's just it's one of you things. You can't help some of those things. Next, Paul identifies his intended readers. And here we have another controversy. In some of the earliest manuscripts we have of this letter, the words in Ephesus... Uh, aren't included. So it's possible that it, it was originally written to the Ephesians, but the name got omitted in later copies so that it could be applicable to other readers, so they could circulate this letter among the other churches. And I don't mind that as an explanation. That makes sense to me. And if that is the case, then actually we could call this, uh, you know, the letter to the church in Panama City Beach. Or we could make it even more specific and call it the letter to the church that meets in the Beachwalk Center with the parking lot that is perpetually being repaved. (laughs) 
either way, I think it would be perfectly acceptable. Uh, I mean, listen, <laughs> we're reading somebody else's mail. Why not just pretend like it's to us uh, or assume anyway? What I really want to focus on is how he describes his readers, which we've already established, you know, is us, right? We're, we're the ones, the recipients of this letter. He's talking to us. So let's, let's, let's embrace that, okay? He's talking to us. And let's look again at his greeting. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Now, in many of the older translations, if you're using a different one, it, it reads to the saints. And of course, when you say to the saints, that's either going to conjure up images of statues in a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox church, or maybe a football team a few states west of us. The NLT that I'm using uh, is called a dynamic equivalence translation, which means it doesn't give us a literal word-for-word uh, translation of each word, but it provides the equivalent meaning so that it kind of helps us better understand what's being said. So instead of translating the Greek word hagios as saints, it gives us the clearer definition of a holy person. And again, to our ears, we hear holy people or saint. And, you know, what do we think? We think of Mother Teresa or Francis of Assisi or my grandma or anybody that's not me, right? When we think of a holy person, a saint, a holy person, is our first thought to ourselves? Usually not. But that would be to make a mistake because Paul was writing to people just like you and me. And notice that he doesn't say people who are working hard to become holy people. No, it is an assumed position. So maybe we need to understand what that means to be holy. What does that mean? Because usually when we hear the word holy, what do we think of? Holy as a holy person. What are we thinking of? What are they like? Levitation? <laughs> Is that what you said? <laughs> okay, yeah, for Blake, it's a, a monk's robe, a monk levitating over him. But for normal people, what is, what is, what does that mean? What, con, what do we think of when we think of pious, perfect, yes, more holier than thou? I mean, you know, those are those things that we immediately go to. We think of somebody who's morally perfect, who's, who's beyond all of this stuff, but that is not what that word means. It it can carry implications of purity and uprightness, but the main absolute meaning of it is to be separate or set apart, or we could say different. When God is identified as holy, it means that he is completely and totally different from the fallenness of this broken world. That's what that means. So if we're identified as God's holy people, it simply means we're like Blake. We're no longer normal. (laughs) It means we don't think like or have the same values and priorities as the broken patterns of this world. We're no longer normal. And, And why is that? Because as Paul says, we are faithfully following Christ. We've trusted our lives to him. We've committed to following his ways and his values and his purposes. And that puts us out of step with the normal people of this world. But it's more than just being abnormal. It's something wonderful uh, beyond words, saints or holy people. That's what God called Israel, his holy people, 
his unique community, his family that was distinct and different from the rest of this world. It's also what was identified as the innermost place in the temple. It was called the holy, the place that symbolized heaven and earth overlapping. It was holy. It was different from every other place. It's also a word that's used to describe the angels surrounding God's throne. Holy. They surround him. They even in Isaiah's uh, prophetic book are speaking to one another, just calling out back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. The idea of it being completely separate from the fallenness of this place. That's the word that God now uses to describe you and me. We are now, right now, drawn into the courts of heaven. Even though we're sitting right here in a rundown strip mall, for Paul, as much as he saw his readers literally living in the region of Ephesus, he also saw them literally and presently living as holy people in the overlap of heaven and earth, in that place that was once described as the Holy of Holy, Holy of Holies, God's temple. That is now us. That's who we are. When we hear the word saint or holy people, we need to recognize that's us. You hear that phrase? Oh, he's a saint. Well, so am I. <laughs> you? Yeah, yeah. You know, but Rob, I don't feel like I've done anything to earn that status as a saint. <laughs> no, you haven't. And neither have I. And we'll get to that as this letter unfolds, how it is that we end up in this amazing place that we're in. Yeah, I don't feel like I live a very holy life. Well, maybe not. But by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, that can change. And we'll get into that as this letter goes on. We are the people of the overlap. The people of heaven and earth united again. That's who we are in Christ. Where God's will is done on earth like it's done in heaven. Starting with our hearts and then expanding out into this world. So that's, that's pretty big stuff for such a short greeting in here. But that's what Paul is saying to them. That's what Paul is saying to us. Here's who, here's who you are. You're sitting down to read this letter. Understand who you are. You are God's holy people. You are his delight. Oh, he'll get into that. You're going to be amazed to see how God views you as this unfolds. It would be a good idea to read through this letter a few times before we get back together again. If you, you know, if you have time, I know there's a lot on TV or whatever, but, but it's a good, it's a good book to read. All right. Paul finishes off his opening with uh, this greeting. Uh, verse two, may God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And oh, I love those words. Grace and peace. Those are going to be important themes throughout the book of Ephesians. Honestly, guys, if you study Paul's letters at all, you'll find grace and peace are huge components of that. I mean, it's a big deal to Paul when it comes to how we formulate as a community, as a people that, that bond our lives together. Grace and peace is is meant to be the hallmark, the, the priorities and descriptions of God's continuing work among his holy people. 
And it's important. He didn't say, you know, I hope you got your, I have you, hope you have more outrage and anger over the state of this world or something. No. No. Even in the jacked up state of this world, he wants people who have grace and peace and represent that to this world. In fact, we could almost say that grace and peace are the chief characteristics of being holy people. People who are different from this broken world. You want to be holy? Man, shut off Facebook for a minute. (laughs) I'm just, you know, I'm not, you understand what I'm saying. I'm not here making rules. You do you. I'm just saying that, that, that we look at the patterns of this world. We look at what it is that's stoking the fires of this world. Let's look at what's the opposite of that. Let's find grace. Let's find peace in the knowledge of God's control over all things and the knowledge that heaven and earth overlap right here where we are, where you're sitting, where I am right now. These are the themes that are going to get expounded on as we dig deep into this letter. And, you know, this is just the introduction. Do you want to know better just who you are in God? You want to know where your identity can be found? Something to build your identity on that doesn't fluctuate with people's opinions, but something solid, something deep on which the passions, the real passions of life can begin to blossom and unfold. Do you want to find meaning and purpose in your life? Something that transcends the meanness of this world? Do you want to know if you're significant, if you're loved, if you're cared about, if you're seen, oh man, then stick with us through Ephesians because those are the revelations that are found in Christ as Paul is going to expound on it for us. So for now, let's take comfort in the reality that in Christ, we are God's holy people. Right here, right now, in our town, in this space, in this building, in our homes, at school, at work, we are God's holy people. You are his saints. Saint Perry, Saint Shirley. I mean, that's, uh, if you want to, go ahead. Just identify yourself that way. Everybody will think you're nuts, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) You're holy after all. That means you're abnormal. Let's allow that truth to build hope in us. And let's take that hope and let it spill out into the world all around us. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this encouraging letter that our brother Paul wrote so, so long ago. Lord, I'm always amazed that we can look at your word to find this amazing piece of literature that, that continues to impact and speak to us, something that only a living word could do, something that could only happen because you, by your spirit, are right here, right now, whispering into our hearts reminding us of who we are. So I pray for everybody here, Lord, no matter what state we walked in here in, I pray that you give us that revelation, that apocalypse of who it is Jesus is and what it is Jesus has done in our hearts and in our lives, how it is that we right now stand in the overlap of heaven and earth. Help us to not only just embrace that as something we believe in, but something that begins to affect every choice that we make and how it is that we conduct ourselves in this world. I pray for us as your church, Father, that you will meet us here in the midst of studying this letter 
enrich us, enlarge our hearts, profoundly change us, and empower us to do your will. I pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. actually take a minute and um, let's just be at peace before the Lord for a second. Ask for that grace and peace that Paul wrote about. And we're just going to play quietly for a minute and uh, let's just spend some time seeking out that grace and peace, recognizing that grace and peace.
It's never been a love so good. He died so we could live. Then he rose up from that grave. Name another king like this. Now all authority forever belongs to him. He reigns in victory. Name another king like this. There's never been a love so great. He died so we could live. Then he rose up from that grave. Name another king like this. Now Before we, we close and uh, speak a blessing on each other, let's just pray once again for the people down south of us. You know, uh, 
we were so grateful that we didn't face another storm, but obviously it comes at the expense of other people. And uh, so we're going to pray for them. We're still looking into what opportunities are going to be there for us to be able to help uh, to, to pay back the kindness that we were shown after the storm that hit us. So be praying about that and uh, those opportunities. But Father, we just lift up the, the people uh, of Southwest Florida to you. Lord, we know that there are family members who've been affected by this. We just pray, Father, that your presence will be there in the midst of this pain. Just like you never forgot us, uh, you don't forget them. And even though the world and the news may move on, we know the pain will continue and last. So we pray that you, by your spirit, will be there to encourage, to lift up, to mitigate the losses that are there by bringing your grace to bear. We pray for the churches that are there that are trying to piece things back together and doing their best to, to help and to reach out and to show your love to those in need. We just ask, Father, that you by your spirit will bring grace and peace to them, even in the midst of the wreckage that they're facing. So come and help. Be that ever-present help in time of trouble for them. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.